Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to compare history with the movie First Man. There are three movies with that name, though. In 2017, there was a documentary released called First Man. That's about the origins of the human race. But we're not covering that one today. Nor are we covering the 1997 movie called The First Man, starring Heather Graham. And that movie is about the very first alien man to arrive on Earth. Although, I guess, in some ways, you could say that Neil Armstrong was the first alien man to stand on the moon. At least, as far as the moon is concerned, he was an alien. That is to say, if the moon could be concerned about anything. (laughs) Okay, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but... Today, we're going to look at the 2018 movie directed by Damien Chazelle, his fourth directorial credit behind a musical in 2009 called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, and two movies you've probably heard of, 2013's Whiplash and 2016's La La Land. On the other side of the camera for First Man is Jason Clark, Claire Foy, and Ryan Gosling who, of course, was also in La La Land. The movie was adapted for the screen by Josh Singer, who wrote the screenplay for many movies that are based on a true story, like The Fifth Estate, The Post, and even a movie that we've covered here on this podcast, Spotlight. Josh adapted the screenplay for First Man off the only official biography of Neil Armstrong. That book is also called First Man, The Life of Neil A. Armstrong, and it was written by James R. Hansen. Are you ready to hear the tale of the first man who walked on the moon? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. If you're a longtime listener, you already know what they are, but if you're new to the show, Welcome. The first thing we need to do is to set up our game. Two truths and a lie. Here's how it works. I'm about to give you three facts. Two of those facts are true, which means one of those facts is not a fact at all. It's an all-out lie. Your task throughout this episode is to find out which one is the lie. Okay, you ready? Number one, Neil Armstrong's only child, Karen, died at a young age. Number two, Neil Armstrong almost died in a test flight before the Apollo 11 mission. Number three, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins were the astronauts for Apollo 11. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, keep your ears peeled because somewhere throughout the episode, I'll mention two of the facts. Those are the true facts, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is the lie, the one that we don't mention. And, of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. The last thing to do before getting to our story today is to get a quick recap of what we've covered on the producer's feed recently. Let's see, looking at the calendar, we've covered uh, Gladiator, The Matrix, Fried Green Tomatoes, It for Halloween, and most recently, that classic movie, The Sandlot. 
Oh, and we also got some supplemental content to the episode with Michael Troy about AMC's turn when I shared an old podcast episode of a a different podcast that I did interviewing the VFX supervisor who worked on turn. Uh, Speaking of supplemental content, there's also another hour or so of supplemental content for today's episode over on the producer's feed. That'll include a lot more of the technical details of the Apollo 11 mission, as well as the Apollo 11 crew's own accounts, all sourced from NASA's vast array of public domain reports and documents. Adding all that up, that's hours and hours of extra bonus content over on the producer's feed. And that's not even to mention the dozens of more hours of previous bonus content. I think we're up to 34 mini-sodes on the producer's feed now and hours of supplemental content on top of that. So it's like a whole other podcast. Now, if you want to get access to the producer's feed, all you have to do is to sign up to support the show for well, whatever you want. It's on a completely pay-what-you-want model. It's just my way of saying thank you for the awesome people like Tammy, who's helping me pay the bills around here and keep the podcast going for yet another episode. Now, if you want to be one of those amazing folks, just like Tammy, who helped out, and actually she recommended fried green tomatoes that we covered as a, as a mini-sode, you can do what she did and head on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. All right. Now let's begin our dive into the true story behind the movie, First Man. The movie opens on Ryan Gosling's version of Neil Armstrong. Of course, we can't really see that it's him yet. It's dark. Neil is wearing what looks like a spacesuit. It's very loud and bumpy. It's not really a nice, leisurely flight. Then again, the view outside isn't quite what you would normally see on a nice, leisurely flight. The event we're seeing here to open up the movie did actually happen. But before we get to that, let's learn a little bit about Neil Armstrong's life up to this point, because I felt that it just kind of threw us in. When I first saw this movie, it was just throwing us into his life, and we didn't really get to see a lot of of where he came from. So Neil Armstrong was born on August 5th, 1930, in the small town of Wapakoneta in Ohio. That's about 76 miles or 122 kilometers to the west of Columbus, Ohio, and 60 miles or about 100 kilometers to the east of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, you can find the Armstrong Air and Space Museum in Wapakoneta. His family stayed in Ohio through World War II, but in 1945, Neil was one of thousands of fans in Columbus watching the home state Ohio State Buckeyes get defeated 35-13 by the visiting Purdue Boilermakers. As the story goes, it was that game that convinced a young Neil Armstrong to change his college plans from MIT to Purdue. After graduating from Purdue University in Indiana, Neil Armstrong joined the U.S. Navy. It's not too surprising, though, when you consider that his college was paid for by the Navy as part of the Holloway Plan, a program named after Rear Admiral James Holloway in the post-World War II military in the U.S. that partnered with colleges to provide education for future officers. The way that program worked, at least as far as Neil Armstrong is concerned, was that you would do two years of college, you would do two years of flight training. It wasn't necessarily flight training for everybody else, but you do two years of flight training, and then you'd follow that with one year of service in the Navy as an aviator, 
And then finally, you go back to college to finish the last two years of your degree. Now, that was the deal that the Navy uh, offered in order to pay for your college, and that was the deal that Neil agreed to. He started college in 1947 when he was only 17 years old. Two years later, in 1949, Neil reported to his flight training in the U.S. Navy. It only took about a year, but on August 23, 1950, Neil Armstrong graduated training and became a full-fledged naval aviator. Of course, as a fan of history, you might have an idea of what else was going on around this time. Just a few months before Neil Armstrong's graduation, on June 25, 1950, the United Nations officially condemned the North Korean government's actions as they invaded South Korea. That kicked off the United States' involvement in the Korean War. Neil Armstrong flew a total of 78 missions during the Korean War, with his final being in March of 1952, not long after the stalemate of the Korean War started, but before the July 1953 signing of the Korean Armistice Agreement that brought about the official ceasefire. It was after the war that Neil returned to Purdue to finish out his degree. The next few years would significantly change Neil's life. He graduated from Purdue in 1955. That's where he met Janet Sheeran. The two were married on January 28, 1956. Between his graduation in 1955 and marrying Janet in 1956, though, Neil got a job in Cleveland, Ohio, as a test pilot for the Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory. He had applied to the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, that was the predecessor for NASA, or NASA, but they didn't have any positions open right away. Eventually, they did, though, and by the time the summer of 1955 rolled around, Neil was working at NACA as an experimental test pilot. Back in the movie, we're still inside Neil Armstrong's cockpit in that opening sequence of the film. The camera cuts to a shaky view outside the windows of the aircraft we can see that Neil is piloting. He's just above the clouds. Pulling back on the stick, Neil forces the plane higher. We can see the numbers on the altimeter climbing as the plane continues to shake and groan under the strain. Then, all of a sudden... It's quiet. The blue sky outside turns black, and we can see the curve of the earth reflecting off Neil's visor. We can see his pen floating. Neil grabs the pen and jots something down on the notepad in his lap. Over the radio, we can hear a man on the other end. He states Neil is at 140,000 feet. Time to begin the descent. The number on the altimeter starts going down. Fast. 139,000, 138,000, 137,000, 136,000. Then, something goes wrong. Somewhere around 115,000 feet, the numbers stop falling. They start going back up. 116,000, 117,000, 120,000. Over the radio, we hear ground control tell him that he's bouncing off the atmosphere. Through some stellar piloting and a little help from a jet burst on the top of the wing, Neil manages to break through and continue his descent back to Earth. 
Once he lands, we can see the full plane from the outside for the first time. And we also get a date for the first time, 1961. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, if you recall, Neil Armstrong started his career as a test pilot years before 1961. So as you can probably guess, this test flight that we see in the beginning of the movie was not Neil Armstrong's first test flight ever. In fact, it wasn't even the first flight in that same aircraft that we see in the movie, the X-15. He flew the X-15 a total of seven times, the first being in 1960. And it's interesting that the movie says it's 1961 because it was actually on April 20th, 1962, during Neil Armstrong's sixth flight of the X-15, that he bounced off the atmosphere of the Earth like we see in the movie. He also didn't peak out at 140,000 feet above the Earth like the movie implies. Neil's X-15 reached a height of 207,590 feet that day. That's just over 39 miles high or about 63,250 meters and 63 kilometers. Fortunately, the X-15 was designed to go that high. It had control systems he could use that would work outside the Earth's atmosphere. One thing the movie doesn't mention, though, is that a part of Neil's mission that day was to test out a new G-limiting device called the MH-96. Now, the idea for the MH-96 was to limit the amount of G-forces the plane would encounter. While the X-15 started its descent, Neil purposely kept the nose of the aircraft pointed up so he could try to hit the 5G limit that should kickstart the MH-96 and, and force that device into action. But it never kicked in. Finally, ground control told him that he'd gone too far. He was getting too close to the massively populated area around Los Angeles, California. 
if something went wrong and caused the plane to crash. No one wanted it to happen in such a densely populated area like L.A. So, Neil began his descent back toward Earth for as long as it took until the normal avionics worked upon entering the atmosphere once again. When they did, he turned around and went back to the dry lake bed landing zone where he was supposed to land. In all, that flight lasted about 12 and a half minutes and saw Neil's X-15 hitting a max speed of 3,739 miles per hour, or Mach 5.31. That's over 6,000 kilometers per hour, or over five times the speed of sound. And as amazing as that is, that actually was not the highest or fastest that the X-15 aircraft ever went. About three months after Neil's flight that saw him bouncing off the atmosphere with a max altitude of 207,590 feet, Major Robert White took the X-15 up 314,750 feet, or almost 60 miles high. That's almost 96 kilometers. For the record, the United States Air Force at that time considered space to be 50 miles up, or about 80 kilometers. That means Major White's flight on July 17, 1962, made him the first person to fly at Mach 6, as well as the first person to fly a winged vehicle into space. Back in the movie's timeline, we cut to the Armstrong's home. Neil is patting his young daughter's back while she vomits into a pail of some sort. She cries, and Neil comforts her and plays with her to calm her down. She responds by lying her head on his shoulder, sucking her thumb, and just enjoying being close to her dad. You can tell she's a daddy's girl, and he's been totally absorbed by her. From a brief cutaway to what looks like paperwork, we can tell her name is Karen Armstrong. There are a few other clues about what's going on just by looking at the paperwork, too. For one, we can see it's from a place called Daniel Freeman Memorial Hospital. Secondly, along the headline of the paperwork, we can see something about cobalt therapy. The camera cuts to Neil alone in his study. He's on the phone talking about a procedure as he looks over more handwritten notes on his desk in front of him. The notes mention a radiation session, side effects, and more. There's one sweet scene with Neil sitting alongside his daughter's bedside. He's watching over her, playing with her hair as she's sleeping. It's one of those times that, as a father, you can recall for years to come to take a mental photograph of that moment. In the next scene, it's heartbreak for the Armstrong family. Neil and his wife Janet, who's played by Claire Foy, are adorned in black. A small boy stands by his parents as they watch a casket being lowered into the earth. Neil's hands are fiddling with the bracelet, the same bracelet we saw Karen wearing in the scene just before. Of course, we don't know exactly what it was like in real life, but unfortunately, this plot point is true. Karen Armstrong was born on April 13, 1959. Neil called her Muffy, a shortened version of Muffin. When she was just a toddler in 1961, 
Karen was playing at a park when she fell. Immediately, Neil and Janet knew something was wrong when they saw blood coming out of her nose and her eyes didn't seem to be focusing on things properly. At the hospital, the doctors ran some tests and that's when they found out Karen had a malignant tumor growing on her brainstem. The next few months had to have been a living hell for Neil and Janet as they and the doctors that treated Karen tried their best to treat the young child. Unfortunately, the tumor proved to be inoperable. I'm reminded of the words of King Theoden from Lord of the Rings, no parent should have to bury their child. In January of 1962, that's exactly what Neil and Janet Armstrong faced. Karen's cause of death was pneumonia, something her little body wasn't strong enough to fight because of the tumor and probably, to some degree, the treatments the doctors were using to try to fight the tumor. She died on January 28th, just a few months away from her third birthday. Well, we'll never know exactly what it was like for Neil and Janet to bury their baby girl on that cold winter's day. What we do know is that the movie was correct in showing they had another child there. Eric was born in 1957, making him just five years old as he had to cope with the loss of his baby sister. Then, in 1963, Neil and Janet had another son, Mark. But that's getting a bit ahead of our story. Back in the movie, in the wake of the tragedy, Neil throws himself into work. He's back at his desk almost immediately. His supervisor, no doubt worried about his focus, tells Neil that his next flight has been canceled. Instead, he's told to focus on writing up the report from his last flight. In other words, he's grounded. Frustrated, Neil looks at the paperwork strewn across his desk. Hidden beneath a typed memo is a paper that catches Neil's eye. All we can see is the headline that reads, quote, NASA to select astronauts for Project Gemini, end quote. And while it's really hard to see, when I pause the movie, I'm pretty certain that the paper is dated April 27th, 1962, with the location of Edwards, California, named as well. Of course, the movie's details here are highly dramatized, but the basic gist of this is true. There are some things that don't get documented in history, though. For example, the thoughts going through Neil and Janet Armstrong's mind in the wake of little Karen's death. What we do know is that the date on the newspaper, being April of 1962, is correct. That's when NASA first announced they were taking applications for a group of astronauts to join Project Gemini. Oh, and as a quick side note, I found it very interesting that in the movie they actually pronounce it Gemini. And while I've always heard it pronounced Gemini, maybe that's because I grew up near Cedar Point Amusement Park in Ohio and they have a roller coaster called the Gemini, But as far as the space race is concerned, I've always heard Project Gemini, not Project Gemini. So that's why it kind of threw me off when they said Gemini in the movie. But hey, pronunciations are a dime a dozen. Everyone pronounces things differently. And everyone always insists that their pronunciation is the correct one. You can't, I get a lot of emails about pronunciations and everyone insists that theirs is the correct one. And yet the next email comes in, theirs is the correct one. And it's different than the one that came in before. But that should never be something that we let distract us from the story. Speaking of which, something the movie doesn't mention was 
the significance of this round of applicants. This was not the first time NASA put out a call for astronauts overall. However, it was the first time that NASA opened up the applications to civilians. Prior to April of 1962, the only people who could apply to be an astronaut were military test pilots. The reason for that simply had to do with security clearances. Military test pilots already had a security clearance. Civilians did not. Even though Neil Armstrong had spent time in the Navy, at this point in his career, he was a civilian test pilot. So that meant he could not apply, at least not until April of 1962. And just like the movie shows, Neil Armstrong did apply. Although the movie doesn't really mention that Neil Armstrong's application nearly didn't make the cut. You see, Neil Armstrong didn't actually manage to get his application in until the second week of June in 1962. And the deadline was June 1st. Fortunately, though, one of the guys that Neil worked with at Edwards Air Force Base noticed his application, and without anyone's knowledge at the time, he added it to the pile of applicants, and that is why Neil Armstrong's application was able to get in. In the movie's next scene, we see Neil sitting down in a hallway alongside others interviewing for Project Gemini. There's at least six on screen that I can see, most of them in military uniforms, but Neil and one other man are in suits. They're the only two civilians applying at least in this scene. He introduces himself to Neil as Elliot. Text on screen tells us that this is Ellington Air Force Base. They're selecting astronauts for Project Gemini. And the date given on screen is August 13th, 1962. That is true, although it's worth pointing out that the date of August 13th doesn't indicate when Neil Armstrong officially became an astronaut. Well, I couldn't find anything in my research to say that Neil was sitting in the hallway at Ellington on August 13th, like we see in the movie. What we do know from history is that one month later, on September 13th, 1962, that is when Neil Armstrong received the phone call from NASA's first chief of the astronaut office, Deke Slayton, to let him know that he was one of nine men who were now officially NASA's second group of astronauts. Neil was one of two civilians in the group. The other was someone we saw sitting in the hallway in the movie with Ryan Gosling's version of Neil Armstrong, a man by the name of Elliot C. As a quick refresher, Deke Slayton is played by Kyle Chandler in the movie, and Elliot C. is played by Patrick Fugit. Back in the movie, after joining Project Gemini, Neil moves his family to Houston, Texas, so he can be closer to other astronaut families and the Space Center in Houston. At home, Neil and Janet Armstrong have another baby boy. His name is Mark, giving the two happy parents two happy boys. At work, Neil is part of a space race between the United States and the Soviets. The U.S. is falling behind the Soviets at every turn. Just after Neil is tasked with being the commander of Gemini 8, he's given more tragic news. This time, it's the friend he made in the hallway earlier in the movie, Elliot C. He and another pilot named Charles Bassett are killed in an airplane crash. The movie does a pretty good job of sticking to these plot points that actually happened here. 
We already talked about the Armstrong's new baby boy, Mark. As we learned earlier, Mark was born on April 8th, 1963. And as a fun little bit of trivia, Mark Armstrong, the real Mark Armstrong, lent his talents to the movie as he played Paul Haney, who, in turn, was NASA's public affairs officer and the voice of the Gemini and Apollo missions in the 1960s. But in the movie, it was Mark Armstrong who played him. Even though we haven't mentioned it yet, the reference in the movie where the American astronauts are watching the Soviets make new strides in space-related technology was also true. This back-and-forth between the Americans and Soviets in the post-World War II decades of 1950s and 1960s is what we now know as the space race. Basically, both countries were pushing to try to be the first. The first flight in space. The first manned flight in space. The first to the moon. The first to land on the moon. Every first was a celebration by one side and a defeat by the other. But our story today is focused on Neil Armstrong, and he was just one of the many people involved in the space race. So if you want to take a step back and learn more about that overall, the space race overall, then check out Based on a True Story, episode number 75, where we covered the epic film, The Right Stuff. That brings us to Elliot C. and Charles Bassett. In the movie, they're killed before ever going into space. Sadly, that's true. It was on February 28, 1966, when Elliot C. was piloting a T-38 jet near St. Louis, Missouri, with his Gemini 9 crewmate, Charles Bassett. We don't know exactly what happened in the cockpit, but according to the official report after the investigation, it was determined the crash was caused by pilot error. It probably didn't help that it was foggy with a mixture of rain and snow, either. As a result of this tragic loss of life, the personnel for the Gemini missions were changed. Gemini 9 launched in June of 1966, and since Elliot and Charles died in the plane crash, they were replaced with the backup crew of Thomas Stafford and Eugene Kernan. Meanwhile, the crew planned for Gemini 10 became the new backup crew for Gemini 9. That would be Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin. Basically, each crew moved up one, and while we never really know For sure, what would have happened if the T-38 hadn't crashed that February day, it's also very likely that Buzz Aldrin may not have been slotted for the Apollo 11 mission. Or maybe even that Jim Lovell may not have been on the Apollo 13 mission. Sort of makes you wonder how those missions would have been altered. History as we know it today might have been very different. Going back to the movie, there's no time to mourn the loss of a friend. Neil and another astronaut named David Scott take off in Gemini 8. Everything seems to go well until, well, they don't. As the movie shows, things start to go wrong after Gemini 8 docks with the Agena target vehicle. That's when, according to the movie, Neil and Scott's craft starts to rotate faster and faster out of control. In a moment of what has to be extreme stress, Neil and Scott are cool under pressure. They manage to get control of the craft, but are forced to abort the mission. That's true, but there's more to the story. For example, if you're like me, when you saw this for the first time, you might be thinking, what is the Agena target vehicle? 
the movie doesn't do a very good job of explaining what this is. And to be fair, it's not like the movie is supposed to explain all the technology behind what's going on in the story. They're just focused on the story around Neil Armstrong. Since the government turns everything into acronyms, the Agena Target Vehicle is also known as ATV. That's what I'll call it from now on. The purpose behind the ATV was to be a place where the astronauts could practice maneuvers in outer space. Remember, the overall goal established in President Kennedy's famous speech was to land someone on the moon and return safely to Earth. To do that, there had to be incremental steps taken. Part of that meant the ability to dock multiple crafts in outer space. For example, the lunar module, or LEM, portion of the Apollo spacecraft would have to dock and undock from the Command and Service Module, or CSM. So, as part of the Gemini missions, first they had to figure out the logistics of things like docking between two crafts in outer space. That's where the unmanned vehicle, like the ATV, came into play. For the purpose of our story today, this is relevant to the Gemini 8 flight. The ATV had actually been launched into space about five months earlier, originally for the Gemini 6 flight. However, they weren't able to complete a docking since there was a mechanical failure, nothing related to the ATV, but it was something that forced the entire mission to be rescheduled. Just like the movie shows for Gemini 8, the crew consisted of David Scott as pilot and Neil Armstrong as command pilot. This marked the first spaceflight for both astronauts. There were two primary objectives for the Gemini 8 mission. First, they were supposed to dock with the ATV a total of four times. The very first space docking in the history of mankind. The second objective was centered around David Scott, who was supposed to do a spacewalk. That's not walking on the moon, but rather what NASA calls an extravehicular activity, or EVA. This EVA would take David Scott outside of the Gemini vehicle to retrieve something from the front of the vehicle. The purpose of this wasn't as a critical part of the mission. It's not like the, the they put a piece in the front of the vehicle that was critical to the mission, but really it was practice to learn more about the logistics of doing a spacewalk. This would have been the first spacewalk since June of 1965. However, you'll notice I said it would have been. It's because... It didn't happen. We didn't see it in the movie, and in this case, the movie was correct to omit it. That's because, simply put, things don't always go according to plan. Leading up to docking with the ATV, everything seemed all right. A little over three hours into the mission, the two astronauts had visual contact with the ATV orbiting the Earth. It took another hour or so to get within a range of 150 feet away from the ATV, that's a little less than 50 meters. From this distance, they spent the next half hour or so doing a thorough inspection of the ATV. After the visual inspection and approval from ground control that the ATV was in good condition, remember it was sent into space months earlier, they lined up to dock. It only took a few minutes from there to complete the dock with a satisfying click and a green light indicator on the dashboard. Once docked, the ATV had an automated program that began to run and rotated both the ATV and the Gemini vehicle together 90 degrees. As fate would have it, around this time, a known radio blackout was about to start. The astronauts were now getting out of range of communications with the ground. 
When the rolling began, the two astronauts tried to stop it using the Orbit Attitude and Maneuvering System, or OMS. Since you can't expect a normal airplane's control systems to work in space, the flaps on the wings, the ailerons, jet engines themselves, and so on, the Ohms were 16 different thrusters on the Gemini that allowed the pilots to control the craft's rotation and movements in space. These are what Neil Armstrong and David Scott used to stop the rotation once they docked with the ATV. And it worked. At first. Before long, the rotation began again. Neil noticed that the Ohms fuel was only about 30%, so he thought maybe there was a problem with the Gemini. So instead of using the Ohms to stop the rotation, the astronauts decided to dock from the ETV so they could basically take a step back and figure out what was going on. Except this caused an even bigger problem. With the ATV and Gemini together, the mass of the connected crafts was much larger than when they were separated. So after the astronauts managed to undock with a burst of the thrusters to get the Gemini back away from the ATV, the Gemini started to violently rotate even more. And by violently, I mean violently. Records indicate their rate of rotation was some 296 degrees per second. Under these extreme conditions, Neil Armstrong kept a cool head. He turned off the ohms and instead used a thruster from the re-entry control system, or RCS. The reason for this was because of the location of the thrusters. The RCS thrusters were located on the Gemini craft's nose. And it worked. The rotation slowed, then stopped. Around this time, the communication blackout was over, and with Gemini back in range, they let ground control know what had happened. They ran some more tests to figure out what had happened, doing short controlled bursts with each Ohm's thruster. One at a time, they tested them until they found out that one of the thrusters, number eight, was stuck on. That's why the rotation kept getting faster and faster after they docked from the ATV. With the near disaster resolved, now the astronauts found themselves facing a new problem. To stop the spin, Neil Armstrong had used the RCS thrusters. Those were for re-entry, and now they only had 25% of the fuel left. The rest of the mission had to be aborted, with the two astronauts performing an emergency re-entry. Gemini 8 was planned to be a three-day mission. It ended up lasting 10 hours, 41 minutes, and 26 seconds. Back in the movie, tragedy strikes someone close to Neil yet again. This time, Neil is at the White House trying to convince the politicians that NASA's transition from Project Gemini to the Apollo program is a good idea, set their minds at ease, you might say. Back at the launch site in Cape Canaveral, Florida, the three astronauts are preparing for the first Apollo mission, and they're running some pre-flight tests. According to the movie, the date was January 27, 1967, when Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were inside the command module as a fire kills all three astronauts. Hearing the news on the phone, Neil is crushed, as is the wine glass that he was holding in his hand. It's a horrible tragedy, and 
Unfortunately, it's one that actually happened. The date in the movie is correct, too. January 27, 1967. At the time, the mission was known as Apollo 204, or AS-204. The name was changed to Apollo 1 in the wake of the disaster. At 1 p.m. local time at Cape Kennedy in Florida, Roger Chaffee, Ed White, and Gus Grissom entered the AS-204 capsule on Pad 34 to run through some routine pre-launch tests. The launch itself wasn't scheduled until the following month on February 21st. Oh, and as a little side note, today that location is known as Cape Canaveral, but in the decade between 1963 and 1973, it was Cape Kennedy. Their purpose that Friday was to run through what was known as a plugs-out test. In other words, they'd run through the entire countdown sequence from inside the AS-204 command module mounted on top of the Saturn rocket, just like as if it were the real thing. The key difference here was that the rocket had no fuel in it, so it wasn't going to take off. In the movie, we see there's a problem with the communication between the astronauts in the command module and the ground control. That happened, but the movie speeds up the timeline quite a bit. By that, what I mean is that the communication problem was not the first hint that something was off. Almost as soon as Gus Grissom got into the command module, he made a comment that there was a, quote, sour smell, end quote, once he hooked up his suit to the craft's oxygen supply. The astronauts took the time to delay the pre-launch test while they investigated that smell. But they must not have found anything because soon after, Gus made the decision to move forward with the test. Soon after that, another problem arose when the master alarm went off inside the command module. The alarm was due to high oxygen flow, and again, the countdown was delayed while they tried to figure it out. Working with the team on the ground, they eventually decided the alarm must have been triggered because the crew inside the command module was moving around too much. Only after these issues delayed the countdown did the communication problem occur. That was at 5.40 p.m., so over four hours after they entered the command modules when the communication problem started. The movie even got the line that we hear Shea Wiggum's version of Gus Grissom say correct. The real Gus Grissom complained about the lack of communication by saying, quote, How are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between three buildings? End quote. He said that at 6.30 p.m. after almost an hour of no communication with ground control had delayed the countdown yet again. One minute later. At 6.31 p.m., the voltage in AC bus number two surged. Of course, no one knew it at the time, but in the investigation afterward, this surge is pointed to as the start of a possible short circuit in the system. Seconds after the record of the surge in voltage, the cockpit recorder caught one of the astronauts saying something that no one wanted to hear. We don't know for sure which of the three astronauts it was, but NASA's official description of the event indicate it was probably Roger Chaffee. Flames, the voice said. Ed White's voice was next to be recorded only two seconds later. We've got a fire in the cockpit. A few seconds later, Roger Chaffee spoke again. We have a bad fire. In all, from that first warning of flames in the cockpit, to the last communication, 17 seconds. According to NASA's report on the tragedy, 
the astronauts didn't have a chance. The command module's hatch was held closed by two things. The interior pressure of the command module that was higher than the atmosphere outside, which kept the hatch shut. There were also latches, each of them requiring a ratchet to tighten or loosen. With the difference in pressure, the fastest they could have opened the hatch would have been a minimum of 90 seconds. Not only that, but the hatch opened inward, making it tough to open from the inside anyway. In the movie, we don't see anyone outside the command module as the fire takes place. And while that's sort of true, it's not like everyone left them alone. Remember, they were trying to figure out the communication problem. Three minutes after the fire started, there were men on the other side trying to open the hatch. Two minutes later, it was opened. Five minutes had passed since the fire started. It was already too late. Roger Chaffee, Ed White, and Gus Grissom perished within the first 30 seconds of the fire. Heading back to the movie, we see another date on screen, 1968. Neil's own life is nearly snuffed out when he's testing a very strange-looking lunar landing research vehicle. The craft spirals out of control, and Neil has just a fraction of a second to pull the cord to eject from the doomed craft. There's a massive explosion, but Neil Shute manages to whisk him away to safety. That was a close call. Too close. Despite this near-death experience, Kyle Chandler's character, the chief, Deke Slayton, tells Neil that he's been chosen to command the next Apollo mission, Apollo 11. Not only that, but Apollo 11 is the first mission with the goal of landing on the moon. That all happened, but the movie really, really speeds up the timeline here. The near-death crash happened that we see in the movie happened on May 6, 1968. And when I first saw the movie, I thought it looked like he was flying the lunar landing research vehicle over farmland. There's nothing else around. However, if you watch the actual footage, because there's actual footage of the accident taking place, you can see it happens uh, over an airstrip. Of course, I'll have a link to the video on the post for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com if you want to watch that. About 100 feet above the ground, that's about 30 meters, the lunar landing research vehicle started to bank too dangerously. Neil Armstrong ejected from the craft and managed to parachute safely to the ground as the craft burst into a ball of flames nearby. According to an after-action report, it was determined that he would have died if he had ejected half a second later. The crew for Apollo 11 was officially selected about eight months after Neil's crash in January of 1969. The launch was scheduled for six months later on July 16th. Just like the movie shows, the three astronauts assigned to Apollo 11 were Commander Neil Armstrong, Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin, and Command Module Pilot Mike Collins. Speaking of the movie, back in the film, it's time for the Apollo 11 mission. We see the three astronauts. Of course, Neil Armstrong is played by Ryan Gosling. Mike Collins is played by Lucas Haas, while Buzz Aldrin is played by Corey Stahl. Once they get close to the moon, it's Buzz and Neil who head to the lunar module, or LEM for short, to prepare for landing. Mike stays behind. This is when things start to go awry. As they're nearing the landing site, Buzz points out that The rocks are the size of cars. They're way too big. We can't land here. Neil takes over manual control and pilots the craft over the designated landing site with only 3% of fuel left. 
There were only seconds left until they would have to force abort the mission so close to the moon. Then they land. After a moment of pause in the quiet that followed moments of panic and blaring alarms, Ryan Gosling's version of Neil Armstrong tells the command center back on Earth, Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That really was something Neil Armstrong said. Although he wasn't trying to wax poetic, Eagle was the name of the lunar module for Apollo 11. Columbia, by the way, was the command module. Apollo 11 launched at 9.32 a.m. on July 16th. Over four days later, at 4.17 p.m. on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong said those words to let ground control know they had landed on the moon at a location known as the Sea of Tranquility. They were officially the first humans to ever land on the moon. Since then, it's a phrase that's been repeated time and again. Back in the movie, moments after landing, we see something we've all seen from the historical footage. Real quick, though, the movie, again, is speeding up the timeline here. By that, what I mean is that the movie makes it seem like Neil Armstrong stepped out of the lunar module pretty quick after they landed. However, according to NASA's official documents on the Apollo 11 mission, Neil Armstrong reported the Eagle has landed at 4.17 p.m. and 40 seconds on July 20th, 1969. Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon took place at 10.56 p.m. and 15 seconds on July 20th. Both of those times are in Eastern Daylight Time. Now, if you want to hear more about this, I've got a supplemental episode I'll be releasing on the producer's feed to go along with this that'll have some of the official mission profiles of the Apollo 11 mission from NASA. According to the movie, though, at the foot of the ladder, Neil tells Houston that the LEM footbeds are depressed into the surface about one or two inches. Actually, let me stop real quick. You'll notice when you're watching the movie here, the voice talking about the LEM footbeds and what's on the surface of the moon look like, that voice does not sound like Ryan Gosling. That's because the filmmakers used the real archival audio as a backdrop for the visuals they created. So... Let's have the real Neil Armstrong take it from here. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. It's worth pointing out that even though everyone knows that saying today, that's not exactly what Neil Armstrong said. In an interview soon after the Apollo 11 mission returned home, Neil explained that he actually said, quote, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, end quote. 
The word A wasn't heard over the transmission. While that might seem like an incredibly small detail, for such a popular quote, the omission of the word A can change the meaning. Neil wasn't talking about man in some abstract sense. He was talking about how it was literally a small step for a man himself, but a giant leap for mankind overall. Back in the movie, at the very end of the Apollo 11 mission, we see Ryan Gosling's version of Neil Armstrong on the surface of the moon with the bracelet that his daughter, Karen, was wearing at the beginning of the film. It's the same bracelet he was holding onto so tightly at her funeral. With tears in his eyes, Neil looks out at the earth across the void of space and drops the bracelet into the crater near their landing craft. That, well... The truth is, we don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is that, like everything else on the Apollo 11 mission, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had objectives they were supposed to do on the surface of the moon. They took photographs. They performed experiments, like studying the lunar soil and its properties. They set up equipment for experiments to be conducted from Earth, like seismic equipment that could be monitored on Earth to get a better idea of the internal structure of the moon. They collected samples including soil and 50 rocks, totaling a weight of a little less than 50 pounds or 22 kilograms. They left a few things too. Of course, there's the American flag. The movie doesn't show that, but the astronauts set up a three-foot by five-foot American flag. They also left a plaque that said, quote, Here men from planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind, end quote. They even called then-President Richard Nixon from the moon, or I guess he called them. (laughs) Overall, the two astronauts were on the surface of the moon for a total of two hours and 31 minutes. The kicker here is that for about 11 minutes of that time, Neil Armstrong deviated from the experiments and sample taking. For that time, he did some exploring of his own. No one knows what he did. There's a great article I would recommend that you read on The Wrap by Beatrice Verhoeven. And that article dives into this into more depth. Neil never seemed to tell anyone that he did leave the bracelet behind, but that article suggests that some folks close to Neil started to get the idea over the years that maybe he did leave something personal behind on the moon. One of those people was biographer Jim Henson, who wrote the book that the movie is based on and spent plenty of time with the real Neil Armstrong to do so. Did he leave something behind? Maybe the bracelet from his little girl, Karen? The truth is, we just don't know. But I would like to think that the movie got it right. I would like to think that even the accomplishment of being the first man on the moon wasn't enough to overshadow a father's love for his daughter. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about the fascinating life of Neil Armstrong, the very first place I would recommend you start is by reading James Henson's biography. That's the book, that the movie is based on, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it is the only official biography of Neil Armstrong. Other sources used in this episode include the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, Space.com, and NASA. 
I'll have a link to that book, the article on the wrap that I mentioned at the very end there, and plenty more resources over on the page for this episode at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And of course, while you're there, you can always go check out the episode of Based on a True Story where we covered the movie The Right Stuff and learned more about the space race overall. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Neil Armstrong's only child, Karen, died at a young age. Number two, Neil Armstrong almost died in a test flight before the Apollo 11 mission. Number three, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins were the astronauts for Apollo 11. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. That is not true. That is the lie. The key word there being child. Karen was Neil and Janet Armstrong's only daughter, and she died at only two years of age. However, she was not their only child. Neil and Janet Armstrong also had two sons, Eric and Mark. As we learned, Mark was involved in the movie. That brings us to number two. That is true. In fact, you might say Neil Armstrong defied death numerous times. There are the test flights, like the one where he bounced off the atmosphere that we saw depicted at the beginning of the movie. Then there's the lunar landing research vehicle crash that he also managed to live through. Finally, that brings us to number three. That is also true. While most people focus on Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin as the first humans to walk on the moon, if you recall from President Kennedy's goal, that was only half of the goal. The other half was to return safely to Earth. And it was Mike Collins who piloted the command module back to our planet. That brings us to an end of this episode. Before we go, there's one last thing I think would be nice to do. I've never heard a podcast share stats for each episode. But I'm a big fan of being as open as possible. So I figure, why not? Maybe if you find out how much it takes, how much time and money it takes to create podcasts like mine, then... Maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free a little bit more. With that said, here are the final stats for the creation of this one episode. Today's episode took a total of 21 hours to create and cost $49.47 in out-of-pocket expenses. It's probably worth pointing out that that time and cost is only for this one episode. It does not include any of the ongoing podcast website hosting costs, Hardware costs, you know, the cost of the mic, the cost of the software, editing software, the computers, or really account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one episode. Don't forget, you can help keep Based on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to tons of bonus content on the producer's feed. For example, I've got some bonus supplemental content from NASA's archives about the Apollo 11 mission to go along with this episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at com. 
Now, if you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I don't want you to feel pressured. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time to just let me talk at you for the last hour or so. I really hope that you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. Until we chat again, thanks so much for listening, and bye for now.